0: So welcome in to episode 36 of the Canucks Speakeasy Podcast. I'm Pete and I'm Doug. Doug, how's things going on your end of town there over on Main Street?
1: Uh, yeah, it's actually not too bad. Uh, definitely noticing more people out and about. Uh, luckily, I, the fiance's taking the dog out so we can, I can record in peace and not have the dog attack me during our uh, podcasting session. Uh, That was one of my favorite parts
0: of the last episode, was watching you get attacked by your dog there. (laughs) Oh, well, uh, I'll I'll have to look forward to something else this episode again. Uh, Down here in the West End, it's kind of the same. You know, when the sun's out, the beaches are packed, but everyone's kind of staying apart, and we're slowly starting to get things going again, and we're going to touch on that among some other things on this episode uh, with the return of sports, at least, you know, kind of... Tipping the toes into the water of the sports world again and what that could mean and uh, and what else we've been kind of getting up to and talking about some Canucks all-time team and a little bit of the last dance because that's uh, on the tip of everyone's sports watching ton at the moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's uh, plenty of sports to talk about and theorize on what the future is going to look like, so uh, we should probably jump into it. But first... Uh, you can give me a follow on Twitter, at Doug Venn. That's V-E-N-N. You can also give the uh, Canuck Speakeasy Twitter account a follow. Uh, it's at Canuck Speak. And you can find me on Twitter, at Pete underscore Gas.
0: And if you're sitting at home and looking for something to listen to, why not give the Canuck Speakeasy outro playlist a follow on Spotify? All our outro jams go on there. All the funky tunes. It's a, It's a pretty good listen. Um doug, you mentioned there's there is plenty of sports to talk about. I think our plenty is is kind of you know it's kind of changed what what plenty of sports is over the last couple of months, but there is enough to talk about now after kind of the doldrums there that we've had and I wanted to talk to you to start this week off about n h l playoff formats because this drastically affects the Canucks uh the Canucks should be involved in whatever scenario the n h l comes back to because they're either 8th or ninth in the Western Conference. It sounds like the NHL and the NHLPA have been making a lot of progress, and I've heard that over the next week to 10 days, they could actually announce something. Um, What are you thinking, Doug? Do you think we're going to see a return? It's starting to sound a little more positive. I know I've been a negative Nelly with a lot of this and saying, ah, they should just scrap it all and, and, and just look towards next year. But with the dollars involved, I think that's seeming less and less likely
1: now. Yeah, I, I do think that we'll probably see some sort of playoff. Whether it's going to be a full seven game series, or you know, if they go to something almost like a NCAA basketball tournament, which I can't see them really going to. I, I could see them maybe doing like a best of five. They don't th- think they can squeeze a full seven game series out. Um, it's just there's so many questions, and again, you know, we sound like broken records. There's so many questions about how this would look, how what format would make the most sense. I do think that they seem to be focusing more on maybe doing like a, a 6 or eight team play-in to the 16-team playoffs, which could kind of make up for the lost television revenue for uh, the games they won't be able to finish for the regular season. I mean, I don't see teams like Ottawa or Detroit wanting to come back at all. Why? Like, why? Those players don't have anything to play for. Um, there's no need for them really to come back. So it doesn't make sense. And California is a mess at the moment. I can't imagine L.A., Anaheim, or San Jose, which is probably one of the biggest disappointments this year, want to come back and play hockey. There seems to be really two ways they could go. Is it As a 20-team playoff
0: format or 20-team return I guess is is more what it is or a 24-team and I'm personally I w- I like the 20-team idea but I think the NHL likes a 24-team idea because then all of a sudden you've got Chicago coming back you've got Montreal coming back and depending on what way you look at it the Rangers I know are right on the fringe as well uh, and that makes it for them getting into those markets again. And I think the NHL is kind of leaning towards that. But myself personally, I, I kind of like the the 20-team idea that's been floated around a lot better. Uh, you, you mentioned California. Any way you look at it, hockey's not coming back to California until next year. They're the bottom three teams in the West. And with California being the mess that it is, it's kind of uh, works out in a nice way that the bottom three teams in the West are, are the three California teams right now.
1: Yeah, I don't, I, I, I've I paid a little bit of attention to the 24-team uh, idea. I don't really know the details of what the 20-team idea would it be. Would it still be like uh, a play-in to get to the 16-team playoff? So two teams on each side, four teams in total, I guess, uh, would be playing to get into the 16-team tournament? So it sounds like
0: either way there's going to be a, a few games to kind of finish out the regular season. So let's say... With a 24 team, for example, you have the four divisions, you have six teams in each division. Everyone plays each other once. So you'd have five games and then the the top teams go on into the playoffs. But there's also different ways you could do that. You can have the top three go in and then the next four teams have a best of three series to take the last two spots. And... There's again with the, the 20 team model, there's kind of a similar thing. Is you know, you have you, everyone breaks off, you have you play everyone in your group. I guess that'd be uh four games, uh, to to even out the season. Top three in the division get buys, and then the last two can play to to get in again. So it's, I, I think the only reason the league is looking at 24 teams, I really feel, is just because of Chicago and Montreal. I think they really want to get those teams in there but there's various ways they could do it I I don't think like I mean you got teams that are looking at who were being sellers at the deadline who are now kind of still involved but I I personally I would rather see them cap it at at the 20 teams and then you you play the regular season games to get everyone warmed up because you're gonna have to do that I don't think you can jump right into the playoffs I don't think you want to I think you need to have a little bit of guys getting their legs back, and the teams at the top there, like teams way at the top, it's not going to really matter too much for them because they're already in. So, you know, you teams like Boston and Tampa, for example, they're going to be in any playoff format. So they they still need some games to get their legs back uh, as well. So if it's 24 teams, it means you get a little bit more of of the end of the regular season a little more games to watch and it also means you're humoring some of these larger market fan bases like new york chicago and montreal but 20 teams i think is probably more fair because i i would just really i, I don't think it's fair to see a team like montreal or chicago get hot and all of a sudden take away a spot from a vancouver or a nashville or a team that's that's significantly ahead of them in, in the standings
1: yeah, I've seen some pushback regarding that as well, especially like a lot of people talking about Montreal because like what happens if Carey Price get, gets a he gets a heater going on and just starts playing out of his mind and I honestly think the teams that are going to be playing to get into the playoff tournament are actually going to be at an advantage compared to the teams that have the buy, so to speak, because they're getting game action before them. So They're going to have that extra game or two to get their legs under them and to be prepared for a long, grueling playoff series. So, I definitely understand. You know, if you're got, if you, I guess you would have four teams on each side potentially jumping into the playoffs, where the other way, you'd only have two teams from each side, right? If you have 24 teams or 20 teams, theoretically, at least in my brain, you'd have four teams, two from the West, two from the East getting into the tournament. If you had 24 teams, you would have. Four teams on each side, four from the West, four from the East getting in, right? Well, no, no. sorry, two two, two and two, sorry, and then one and one is what I should say, my bad. But yeah, it's still, I, I, I know what you mean, but I also get it like the NHL wants those big market cities, like you said, I mean, Chicago's what, the third biggest market in the US, Montreal... Is probably the second biggest market. I know Vancouver is pretty big as well, but you know if you look at the stored history of the Canadians, uh, they're probably the second biggest market outside of Toronto, of course.
0: Well, Montreal's the second largest city in Canada, so yeah, that's uh, it's that's a, it's a huge market. But Montreal is a team that has the most to gain by a 24- twenty-four. Team format. They're 10 points out of a playoff spot right now. That's the most out of anyone. I mean, Chicago, they're 12th in the West, and they're only 6 points behind Nashville right now. So Montreal is the team that would be the biggest winner by a 24 team format. So if you come back with 24 teams, and there's a couple ways they could do this. So you have 4 groups of 6, and the top 3 get by. So if you're in the top 3 spots, so that kind of guarantees it for teams like, again, like Tampa and Boston. They go in and then the team that is last in the group is eliminated and then you have teams 4 and 5 play to get in in a best of 3 and by that point everyone will have played games teams 4 and 5 get have to play an extra couple games to get in which could be a benefit or it could hinder their chances as well depending on what happens and then you go on and and the only real difference by going to 10 is the disadvantage from the league's point is that there's less games. You lose Chicago and Montreal, and again, Rangers are right on that bubble. I, I think the Rangers are in either way. They're uh, they're yeah, it looks like the Rangers are in either way. So that's that's good for them. Uh, but it's really about getting Chicago and Montreal in, keeping those fans interested. And again, though, what if price gets hot, and what if Montreal is able to sneak up past a team like Florida. And steal a playoff spot all of a sudden. Like I, I don't know. I think Montreal's odds... I think Montreal's probably... There, there's no way they can do it. They're just going to humor the fan bases. But for me, it's... Uh, I, I guess it, it doesn't matter too much from a Canucks side. Either way, the Canucks are going to be right in the mix of it. If the Canucks go hot in any format, though, I mean, they could very easily catch Calgary right now I mean they're only a point behind Calgary so the Canucks could get hot and who knows they could even catch Edmonton they're only five back of Edmonton too so it's uh I don't know it's 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 interesting I think it's fairer to have 20 teams but I understand why the league
1: would want to go with with 24. I think at this point the more teams probably the better overall I, I think just looking at it You know, every every market starved for hockey or for any sport at the moment, but especially like big hockey markets like Chicago is a big hockey market. New York is a big hockey market. Montreal is obviously a hockey market. So it makes sense that you want those teams in there. And you know what? Like this year, no matter what happens, whether it's a 20 team format, a 24 team format, There's going to be a little asterisk next to the Stanley Cup awarded this year, anyways. Just the way everything happened and the way the things developed. I just, no matter what the NHL tries to do, I think the perception 10 years from now will be oh, this was the Stanley Cup that was awarded during the pandemic and they had that weird play in, you know, for some of the bottom teams and a team like. Chicago got hot and made it to the final and lost to whoever, Tampa Bay, let's say. But, you know, it was a weird, weird uh, Stanley Cup that year. Is Do you put an asterisk next to the lockout shortened year as well? I personally don't, but I think people still do. I mean, I, I guess it depends, right? Like, no one remembers. Like, was it Pittsburgh that won the lockout shortened year? I believe so, yeah. And I mean, it's funny because they'll have actually played more games this
0: year than the lockout-shortened year. Because the lockout-shortened year, I believe, was only 48 games, and most of the teams
1: now are around 70. But see, here's here's why I think there's a little bit of a difference. I think it's because ha- playing less games, it's not that big of a deal. The playoffs and the, the teams that made the playoffs, there's no contention there. In Considering all the teams played the same amount of games, this year I think it's different because teams haven't played the same amount of games, so it's a lot harder for them to try to seed the standings from the West and the East and figure out playoff matchups. That's why they're opening it up past beyond sixteen teams to potentially twenty or twenty four. So I think that's why there might be a little bit more contention on the eventual winner of a Stanley Cup if this does end up coming to fruition this year. Well it's it's gonna winning percentage regardless is is the
0: tiebreaker. It's not points. So you're gonna be looking at winning percentage, which is why if you look at it that way, the Canucks are in. But if you look at overall points, Nashville is in because uh, of the way the the default sort is on, on the NHL.com website. But I think that uh, r- regardless right now, I, I don't know if you should have more teams. I think the more teams in, the less credible it is for this kind of tournament. I think uh, you do have to have a, a line that you cut off. And regardless, like I said, you're not going to see the California teams. You're not going to see Detroit and Ottawa. Uh, and New Jersey and Buffalo. Uh, all those teams, we, we know they're out. So it's just a question of are you doing a tournament that includes Florida, Montreal, Arizona, and Chicago?
1: Are you cutting those teams as well? Yeah, uh, I, I think just given the circumstances, and, you know, I think they're also worried about, like, you know, a market like Arizona, which, you know, this could be the end of Arizona, essentially, as a NHL city I don't know if, you know, that market... I mean, that market was in trouble to begin with. And, you know, so this could be a way to kind of hopefully galvanize the fans and get the fans and that market to go out to the games and what have you. I I know what you're saying, and I totally agree with you, that the more teams you add to this, the less credibility the end result is going to have, I think, you know, in the future. But I think right now they're... They're trying to open it up to everybody. They, I think they want as many teams in as possible that weren't completely out of the race, a la Ottawa and Detroit.
0: Yeah, there's teams that we we know are are, are completely out of it. And I, and I get that they want to have more markets in. And the way that they're talking about formatted, it's still going to be really hard for a team like Chicago or Montreal to get in. But There is that chance. There's that outside chance that the team gets hot enough, Montreal wins out their group, let's say, in a 24. If Montreal won out their group, they theoretically could get into the playoffs. I mean, if they, if they won five in a row, if Carey Price gets hot, Montreal could make the playoffs, which would be kind of an incredible story considering they have 11 games left and they're 10 points out of the playoffs. But I think maybe a lot is more. Maybe I'm making a lot more out of the whole Montreal thing than than I need to. I get that they're... they're trying to get as many teams in the big markets, Montreal and Chicago, they want those fans to get back. The other thing that I find interesting, though, is, is it's an unbalance with the teams. Like right now, if you were to do 12 teams, seven teams in the, uh, in the Central Division make it and only five in the Pacific do. So you'd have to have someone from the Central... I think geographically, it would likely be Minnesota jumps over and in, plays into the Pacific Division. And then likewise in the East, uh, the cutoff there, I think uh, in the Metropolitan, seven of the eight teams would make it. And then you have five from the Atlantic. So you'd have to move one of the teams over as well from the Metro to the Atlantic. And are you doing that solely based on geography and whatever you do, that's going to have an effect on it. However you move a team. So I don't know who you move over to the Atlantic. Just looking at this right now. I mean, you want to, it'd probably be Columbus. I'm guessing you'd probably move Columbus over into the Atlantic, but uh, again, it's uh, however you do this. It's not going to be perfect. I I guess every hockey fan wants it to be perfect, but there's no way it's going to be perfect. So it's just kind of creating a scenario that works best for the league. And, is fair enough that the teams that have the best shot of making the playoffs do make the playoffs.
1: Yeah, and who knows? Like they might even look at a system where, you know, maybe all the Canadian teams play each other, you know what I mean? And they don't even do a west east so to speak, you know, they they divide it by north and south. And I mean, again, I don't know looking at it how you would divide it like that. I mean, Winnipeg to me would make sense to kind of move over to the west or to the Pacific Division as well. Um, if you because you said there was is it the central team the central division had seven and Pacific only yeah. has five right so maybe Winnipeg yeah. would be Wh- the team
0: that would be a good one too that'd be the old Smythe I don't see any way they have teams hopping conferences I think that really hurts the integrity of it uh, I think you're going to keep teams in the conferences you do have the U S border you got to figure out of course and you do have all these players who are uh, overseas but regardless of how you break it uh, you're going to eventually have to figure that out and I mean teams if you put them all in a hub it doesn't really matter where it is if you're like hey this is your hub and this is your hub uh then i don't think it matters too too much how how they do it but uh, i i don't see them splitting up the conferences i think i think the teams will stay in the conferences that just gets super messy with trying to figure out a playoff race it's all all of a sudden vancouver is is a a bad example but vancouver is now in the eastern conference i mean it just it completely messes things up so i think you're going to keep things with how they are with the conferences. It's just there'll have to be some division hopping for the hubs and the groups to to make it work, in my opinion.
1: Yeah. What do you think? And again, look, it's pure speculation, but like, when would you see a realistic date of an actual game being played? Because you got to think they're going to do roll call first, right? They're going to call all the players overseas to come back to their teams. They're probably going to have to spend two weeks in quarantine before they can even start practicing with their teammates. And then from there, you're going to want some sort of training camp, which is probably going to be, I would imagine, three weeks. Maybe maybe they can cut it down to two. When would you theoretically think the first game would be played? I've
0: heard the PA wants a three-week training camp, but I think I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I think you're, you are going to need your quarantine and whatnot. I think that uh what's today today is the 20th we're recording on let's say in the next 10 days the nhl and nhlpa sort something out um even by doing that with players needing to come back and even by doing an uh, abbreviated uh training camp like maybe a two-week training camp you're not going to see games until the end of june by by that way of doing it so Uh, I would say maybe Canada Day is what they're targeting. I could see Canada Day. Uh, I know Major League Baseball is also trying to make a comeback around then. And I've said all along I'm predicting baseball will be back by July 4th. I think that's, that's what they're targeting and that's what it sounds like. Um, And I think the NHL is going to do whatever they can to get back, but it's, it's going to realistically, I think Canada day, the day we'd normally be going in and watching the free agent frenzy is going to be the return of hockey. So I I think that's the earliest. I think there's also the NHL would like to beat out the NBA if they can, but might, that's always tricky because there's a lot more hurdles for the NHL and the, the NBA. But I think realistically, July 1st is, is about when you could maybe expect to see hockey back. And Then when does that go until probably until the end of August and then uh, we're going to have an abbreviated season next year. I I still don't know how they're going to do the draft and free agency and other things in there as well
1: and insurance for the players and and all that other stuff. Well, I will say this, Pete, for uh, two content creators and podcasters like you and myself. It won't be the dog days of summer for uh, sports if they are able to start playing hockey, say in July, and then rush free agency at the end of August, beginning S- September. Somewhere in there, like you said, there's got to be a draft that's going to be done. And it, again, you got to feel sorry for these young kids who've probably waited their whole lives to for this year to be drafted, like an Alex A. Lafreniere. And now that whole thing's on hiatus. Who knows when this poor kid's going to have his chance to get drafted. Uh I think July first is a little optimistic. I think I agree. I mean, that would be the perfect scenario. Just like baseball coming back on the fourth of July would be the perfect scenario. I I still think you'd realistically you're probably looking at like July fourteenth, July fifteenth, before we could probably see the puck drop for the first time.
0: Hey yeah, July fifteenth, that's my birthday. It'd be the first time I'd ever get to watch hockey on my birthday. Wow, I didn't even know that off the top of my head. That's a that's a good <laughs> guess. Pete's birthday. But- Hey, there we go. I've said too much. Um, No, I I, I agree. And going back, I know we've talked a bit about the draft before, but there are other leagues in the world that the NHL needs to consider, too, because the NHL is intertwined with, of course, the AHL, the CHL, European leagues. And these players need to know, especially the NCAA kids, they need to figure out what they're doing, which is why I think in the Canucks case, a guy like Jack Rathbone is more than likely going to be going back to college and not going pro this year. And I think that's probably a good thing, but players need to know where they're playing uh, and other teams need to know where these guys are playing. So there's, there is a huge domino effect, which is why I think the NHL may try and get a draft done sooner rather than later. And if you have, let's say, let's just say mid July, uh, you have the playoffs sorted then you would at least know all these conditional picks are the Canucks drafting this year in the first round, or is it's the pick getting moved over to next year? I mean, there's all these things to consider as well. So I think that's, that it's all good. There's so many moving pieces, man. It's, it's uh it's a bit of a mind fuck trying to get your head around it. But I think uh, early to mid July, it sounds like we can, we can say hockey could be back. Um, it sounds like More and more not could. It sounds like it will. I think the the money involved with with it coming back this year is probably too high to just completely forfeit and forget and walk away from, especially with everything that's happening. The players are looking at escrow and the owners are looking at their pocketbooks and everyone's saying we need to get this back.
1: On a similar vein with the topic we're discussing here, do you think one positive test shuts it back down? Or do you think they, like, what happens if, like, a a player on a team tests positive? Obviously, they're going to have to test the entire team to make sure no one else is, you know, like, what if you're in the middle of a, because it sounds like they're going to be testing every day. I know, I think it was Major League Baseball thinks they'll need, like, 10,000 tests a day or something crazy like that. I don't know if the NHL would need that many, but they'll probably need 2,500 to maybe, you know, 3,000 a day tests, because you got to think all the equipment managers, coaches uh players all that stuff what happens if the Canucks are in the middle of a seven game series and Jake Vertanen who is probably the most likely person on the Canucks to test positive I was gonna say him too (laughs) um you know what if he tests positive or whoever else let's say you know Markstrom tests positive are the Canucks now like eliminated from the playoffs because of it like what happens
0: well, I think the the rules of quarantine are going to be extremely strict. This is a bubble they're going to create, and I know Vegas is one of the places they've talked about because there are hotels big enough that attach right onto the rink there that they could just keep everyone together. Uh, I don't know, um, but if a player gets sick on a team, it's hard not to envision them having to quarantine the whole team, and yeah, that would be completely unprecedented but would a team have to forfeit that may just be something in there is that look we are taking this seriously we're going to be doing this but you as teams also need to be sure of this because if something slips up your team is out but what if that means that oh well vancouver has played chicago minnesota and winnipeg in the last day or two and all of them have to get quarantined too yeah it's it's a worse nightmare for the nhl to do that i think it's going to be a lot of testing and a lot of quarantining and everyone is in a bubble
1: yeah, uh, it'll be interesting regardless of what happens. I mean, I can't say it's not going to be entertaining.
0: And I don't think anyone will be ordering pizza to the room and we can we can talk about that <laughs> a little bit more later as well. Um we could talk and speculate a long time about the NHL, but let's just kind of keep this moving along. We've uh, seen the return of sports in kind of the dregs uh, of sports, in some people's opinion. Uh, UFC is back. NASCAR is back. And Bundesliga is back. And I got to admit, I watched all three of those this weekend because they were on. Uh, Doug, what have you caught so far from the return of sports?
1: Um, I I've definitely caught the UFC. I watched the pay-per-view event last weekend and then, uh, the previous weekend, before that, part of me, there was a pay-per-view event, Event, and then this past weekend, it was a uh, uh, fight night, which was free, which was nice. Uh, I didn't watch NASCAR, um, you know, to see who turns left the best. Although, I will admit that actually, when I was younger, I, I actually was a bit of a NASCAR fan. Uh, there was a racer named Davey Allison, who I was a big fan of. He drove the Haviland car, and he actually died in a helicopter crash. Um, so, a little, uh, I can't shit on the NASCAR fans too much, because Young, impressionable 12-year-old Doug, kind of like NASCAR a little bit. Rusty Wallace as well was one of my guys. And the Bundesliga, uh, I didn't catch any of the games, but I definitely saw the highlights. Obviously, everyone in Vancouver has a tie to the Bundesliga and specifically Bayern Munich with Alfonso Davies playing for there. And by all accounts, he looked great.
0: Well, NASCAR's racing right now as well. Um, they're doing another race at Darlington. I forgot they got like four races in 11 days. I tried to get into it. It's just, it's different from what I'm used to with racing uh, in terms of F1 in kart series. It's, it's a very different format. Um, it was, yeah, it was something. I mean, I'll probably watch it again just because it was on, but uh, Bundesliga was great. It was nice to see Alfonso Davies out there. And, and I got to admit, even without the the crowd there, I know it was a little bit surreal at times. But there was enough noise coming through the TV from players, from coaches, from refs. It was kind of neat in a way to to be able to hear some of that stuff. Um, I didn't. It didn't take away from the game as much as I thought it would. So, coming back to empty arenas are like. I said before, maybe partially filled, like 10 to 20% filled arenas. Uh, Maybe that could be, it it maybe won't affect the game as much as I think if there's enough mics around there.
1: And it's kind of cool to have the whole mic'd up parts of the game. Yeah. Well, even the UFC, like watching those two events that I've watched, I think they've actually had three events in the last uh, two weeks, but the two events that I got, I caught just hearing the coaches, like you could always kind of hear the coaches, but you can hear them way more now. And, you know, kind of what they're saying. And even like, you can it's not really an echo, but like you can actually hear the, the commentators a little bit more clearly uh as far as their like dissonant sound while they're commentating on the fight. Uh, it is surreal, and uh there was a couple of interviews of some of the fighters after uh one of the events, and they said it was just so weird coming out with their like pump up music and there's no fans and you know everything. Even the coaches, I heard a couple of the coaches, they were saying, you know, they were kind of like Normally, they're kind of like yelling at the fighter because they're trying to drown out all the crowd noise to let them know, you know, hey, you got to knock this guy out or you got to, you know, keep your hands up to block those shots or whatever they're saying. And from what I had seen with a couple of interviews from coaches post fight, they were they were actually kind of whispering because they didn't want the other team to kind of hear what they were trying to tell their fighter. And they said it was just a weird thing. And it was just yeah, it was just wasn't what they're used to. And I don't think any of us are used to this. UFC at least they're able to black out enough of uh, the stuff around the octagon. I f- I
0: thought that you you couldn't tell too much of what a cavernous room that they were they were fighting in. Um, NASCAR at least they they make a lot of noise, but then afterwards yeah when the drivers are talking about the race they're like yeah this is weird coming out here and there's nobody cheering you it's just dead quiet i didn't really pay attention to it while i was driving but now it's kind of spooky and weird like it was just quiet like normally there's you could hear engines revving a bit in the background but there's no crowd noise uh, at all um bundesliga was the highlight for me i mean as uh, I, I i'm a soccer football fan and uh getting to watch Bayern play and Alfonso play and you're starting to see movement with the premier league as well now. Um, so it was, it's, 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 again, it's funny that the sports that come back first are the ones I really don't know much about. Like I know you're a UFC fan. I don't really follow it, but I, I enjoyed watching it enough. Uh, uh, there's a lot of aspects about UFC culture and stuff that drives me crazy. Like I freaking hate the announcer and, always yelling fighting all the time. I think that's the douchiest thing uh, I've ever seen in, in sports is anytime uh, the the announcer's announcing these guys, he has to yell fighting in this corner. I'm like, oh, man, that's just douchebag central right there. I don't like that
1: at all. Yeah, I mean, we all know you have a secret stash of Affliction shirts in your closet, Pete. <laughs> you,
0: you can't see my tap-out tattoo uh, on my lower <laughs> back.
1: Uh, you know what's actually really funny? Uh, we were watching uh, some friends of ours Uh, We were watching it at uh, his place uh, last weekend, and one of the guys, and again, we're talking 2020, the guy, I think, is not even, he's maybe 32 years old, and he had a no, you know, the no fear eyes? Remember no fear, the eyes? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had the no fear eyes tattooed on his rib cage. Was this one of the fighters did? Yeah, and the guy was like 32. I'm like, (laughs) dude, how is that even a thing? Like, Yeah. No oh, fear.
0: That was like 1991 or something. Yeah. There. Yeah. It is. Oh, man. I forgot about No Fear. That's the era of hyper colors and, and guests and, and, uh, Club Monaco as well, right around there. That's ridiculous.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, man. It, it, but, you know, I will say this. I agree with you. Any sport right now to see on television is great. I know there's this, uh, little tournament coming up this golf tournament that's including peyton manning tom brady tiger woods and phil mickelson which i think will be really cool and i don't know if you caught it they did like a little zoom call and uh peyton manning i got to give credit to that guy man he is extremely funny he was actually really ripping into tom brady uh, because i guess they're having the game down in florida and peyton manning was saying how he really wishes this would have been on neutral territory somewhere that hates uh Tom Brady somewhere like Denver, Indianapolis, and then he says or Boston because he totally turned his back on them. And <laughs> did you see Tom's laughing his ass off? It was really good.
0: Uh, Peyton Man- Manning's pretty funny. Like I remember, that there's some of the stuff like the old commercials with him and Eli and the promos that they did uh, as well. He's he's got he's a pretty funny guy. Uh, I, I don't mind Peyton Manning. He's uh, one of my buddies uh, over here. is a big Colts fan, and he's uh, he's got a hard on for that guy all the time. and uh, Eli Manning, I know you're not a fan of it all, though. No, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> so one other thing that's come out uh, over the last little while as TSN tries to fill their their channels with something to watch is they've been doing the all-time teams for all the Canadian NHL squads. So for all seven of the, the teams that we have here, the Canucks were the last one, I believe, that came out. And I, I hadn't been following TSN, so I kind of missed all this until... You pointed it out to me. So, pulled up the team. Looks pretty good to me. Um, Doug, what do you think? Is there any any switcheroos that you would like to make out there?
1: Yeah, I mean, goaltending, Luongo, McLean, there's no argument. Like, those are nah. clearly the two best goalies in franchise history. No one's going to have any contention about that.
0: Nope, nope. I'm even, fine with that.
1: Even the six defensemen, like, you could make an argument for Jovanovski. Absolutely. But, honestly... Olin, Lidster, Lume, Sallow, Edler, Biexa. I'm fine with that as well.
0: It's it's pretty solid. If you had to put in Jovo, I mean Jovo for me is kind of the next guy, I think, who could be on, on there. Uh, who
1: would you take out? Uh it would be between Salo and Biexa for me.
0: Oh no, no. You you speak ill. No, no, you can't take those boys out. <laughs> well, definitely not Biexa. Biexa is like my all-time favorite Canuck. Um, and I also think I know we talked about this before too, but Sammy Sallow, I think if if he was healthy and you know didn't have to go out and do things like shave and push a lawnmower around and get in a car, he if he was healthy, he could have been the best Canucks defenseman we've ever had. That guy was amazingly talented, both ends. Of course, the bomb of a shot. Um, my my initial thought was Doug Lidster out of, out of any of them. I mean Edler, Lume, and Oland. I think those guys they're locks. Uh, on the left side there. Uh, Lidster, though, I mean, he's fifth on the Canucks all-time in points and games played for a defenseman. So I think kind of by that, you're like, well, he's kind of got
1: to be in there, doesn't he? Yeah, I think he, he played nine seasons for the Canucks. The other thing is I have to double-check because they they were very – they made a poignant point to make sure that every player was playing the correct position. -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know if you remember at the top of your head if Jovo played the left side or the right side. He just left. Okay, so because we just named all of the right defensemen that was listed. Mm -hmm. So I mean, if he if he did play the because I do remember Oland and Jovo playing uh being a pairing uh, a few times. I don't know if that was just on the power play or the PK, but I remember them being a uh, a pairing. So if he did play the left side, and again, I haven't actually looked it up, you'd have to get rid of one of Olin, Lume, and Edler. And again, I do love Kevin Bieksa. I think he's amazing. But for me, Matthias Olin is one of my all-time favorite Canucks defensemen, if not my favorite Canucks defensemen. Uh, Quinn Hughes is quickly jumping up that that mountain of being my all-time favorite Canuck. Uh, defenseman, but clearly he didn't play enough games to actually uh, be qualified for this. For me, the only contention I have and the only player that I really feel strongly about and adamant about for not being included on the team is Alex McGilney. The guy should be in the Hall of Fame, and he still isn't in the Hall of Fame. He played; he was a right winger, so then you have to take out one of Bure, Bertuzzi, Tanti, or Smeal. Bure, obviously, 100%, 1,000%. Probably the greatest player, if not the greatest player in Canucks history, uh, is easily the greatest player in Canucks, the most talented player in Canucks history. Bertuzzi, at his prime, I think he was still one of the best Canucks of all time. I'm too young to remember Tony Tante. I know you speak very fondly of Tony Tante. Yeah, yeah. When I first started
0: first started following the Canucks, Tony Tante was the closest thing we had to an all-star. He put up a 45-goal year, and that was the Canucks' record until Bure broke it, uh, shattered it, really. Now, I, I know what you're saying with McGilney on the right wing, and I'm looking at that too. I, like, you can't take out the steamer. And by their criteria, you need well, you need a checking line there, right? Like That's one of the things with TSN saying here, you've got to have one line uh, as a checking line. And Tanti can't play on that. Maybe Bertuzzi could. It's a bit of a stretch. I mean, Kessler and Burroughs, they have on there, 100% agree with that. There's, there's no argument there. Um, McGilney, 50 goal man with the Canucks he did that one year but I don't know if uh, like looking when I start diving deep into it I do believe after Bure McGilney holds the record for most goals in a season by the Canucks the other thing that's interesting uh, about McGilney is Canucks on all time forwards he's actually third in points per game behind Pavel Bure and JT Miller JT Miller, wow yeah, well, I mean, Miller right now, he's uh, over a point a game. Um, but if you look at it, the only two Canucks who are over a point a game up front are Bure, who played 428 games, and Miller, who's played 69. But third after that is Alex McGilney, who's played 312 games with Vancouver, and he had 308 points. So that's a strong case uh, for McGilney as well. But 312 games and... 308 points. The 308 points among forwards has him at 19th on the Canucks all-time list. So there, that's kind of the counter argument with him. And I don't know, like, I mean, Tony Tanti did put up a lot more points. He put up 470 points uh, and he played more
1: games as well. So for me personally, I got to give it to Tanti here. I can't really argue against Tanti because I didn't get to, like, I didn't really see him play or, you know, what he was able to bring to the team for me, it's Stan Smeal and look, I know everyone, you know, of that era holds Smeal up and high regard and yada, yada, yada. He was a checker. Like he was a fourth line checker and you brought up the point. Well, they were very clear about having a checking line and he's on the checking line. But to me, Todd Bertuzzi could easily go to the fourth line and you put McGillney on the second line with Naslin and Linden. Uh, again, that's just me, uh, and they also have a foundational player, Orland Curtin back. I don't know what that really means. I don't know if that's just like because he was the first captain or anything like that. But why yeah, could Smeal sure. Yeah, why couldn't Smeal be your foundational player and then you put McGillney there? And I know Steamer's the first guy to get his first Canuck to get his number retired. So that obviously holds some precedence. He's still part of the organization. Um, you know, you got your Steamers hot dogs in the arena, which I've never tried, but I heard they're good. They're, they're pretty good. But I mean,
0: Steamer as well, like he is a captain, uh, former captain of the team. He's still with the organization. He played 896 games, he's fifth among Canucks. Forwards all-time scoring, like there, there are a lot of things with him, and and yeah, I know that when we re- I, we retired Steamer's number, it was almost like we had to retire a number. Uh, Canucks were just like we needed to retire someone. Would Smeal have been retired in a place like Montreal or Toronto? It's debatable, right? I I, I don't know, and I think that's the only kind of thing that can maybe have people questioning it, but. I I can maybe handle putting Smeal as the foundational, but I think he's done enough as much as we rag on him at times. I think he's done enough to, to get in there. Um, and, and yeah, so the right side is crowded. Maybe you move Smeal down. I mean, or- Orland Curtinback was uh, our first captain and was with the team for the first couple of years. I'm not really sure what their criteria is for a foundational. Oh, wait, here it is. Foundational players are defined as players part of the fabric, the DNA of a franchise. So you could move Smeal there. You could. But, again, he's the fifth highest scoring forward all time. Like, he probably deserves a spot on that team.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, you're not wrong, but I also think with S- Smeal, it's just – He's a legacy player. He played his entire career with the Canucks. Uh, at least I believe he played his entire career with the Canucks or the, you know obviously the majority of the, his career with the Canucks. He played uh you know for the Canucks for it was his whole career. he was and he also played for the the Bruins, the new
0: Westminster Bruins. That's where he was drafted out of if I remember.
1: Okay. um so I get it. Uh, you know, I will say this as well. Uh, very glad Ryan Kessler's on the team absolutely deserves to be on the team. Um, so I'm glad that happens because there seems to have, you know, I think the the wounds have been mending this year with the 50th year anniversary and him being invited personally by the Sedines to go to the. Jersey retirement then obviously him and BX is starting the podcast but Kessler 100% deserves to be on the team I just feel like Alex McGillney gets no fucking respect like I don't get this guy he's not in the Hall of Fame he should absolutely be in the Hall of Fame he was one of the first defectors over from Russia he, to mm-hmm. play in North America like he, I think Makarov was the first kind of high profile guy and Larionov as well well
0: it was the same year so if I remember I think it was Sergei Priyakin was the first one who came up- over and he went to Calgary and then the next year was the six Russians and that was when uh Krutov and Larionov came to Vancouver McGilney went to Buffalo um who is it Makarov to Calgary Fe- uh Makarov went to Calgary and then Fedosov and uh is it Konstantinov I think went to New Jersey and those were the first six but Priyakin was the first one but yeah McGilney was in there and then Right away after that, of course, Makarov won the Calder, and then they changed the rules with that. you that can't be over 25. And then McGilney tied Solani, and Solani's rookie year was 76 goals, which was that year where I think also Robitaille, Yager, and Lemieux, I think, all also broke 60. Like, that was that year where just points were coming out the wahoo. Uh, but that was right around that time. And, yeah, McGilney, McGilney, in my opinion, all those Russian players deserve to be in the Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, and again, so for me, you know, I will admit I'm a little sensitive. I I feel like he should definitely be in the Hall of Fame. I feel like he's not really remembered for his time as a Canuck. And, you know, like you said, he's the only, I think, outside of Pavel Bure, he's the only other Canuck to score 50 goals in a season. Yep, And Bure also got hurt. He blew his knee out, I think, the first year they traded for McGilney uh, in that Mike Pekka deal, which obviously Mike Pekka was another uh, young center who I really like kind of you know the same milk of a Ryan Kessler had that open ice hit on uh, Timo Solani I remember it was one of my favorite highlights as a kid uh, and yeah I just feel like McGillney just I don't know what it is man he just doesn't seem to get the respect I will say this and I do remember this Pete I believe uh, it was the Sedin's retirement game there was a guy at the aisle across from us who was wearing a Canucks Alex McGillney the salmon red jersey and I kept giving him the old eye I was like nice one buddy I respect he's, you.
0: He's like that creepy guy with the ponytail is giving me the look <laughs> over there. Um, what do you think about my, my only question and like, I knew, I knew you're a big McGillney fan. I knew you were going to bring that up. So I was looking at the right side and like, look, there, there is an argument for that. Maybe moon Smeal to where a is just to make room for McGilney. I get that for
1: me. Uh, the left side, Jeff Courtnell or Greg Adams. I would probably actually go with Greg Adams. Um, but Adams, to me, he he was almost like a playoff performer, where Courtnell, I think had better regular season numbers. Well, actually, if you look
0: at it, and I was looking at this earlier, uh, let me just pull this back up. Um, bear with me one sec. Is they both actually were incredibly good playoff performers? Like Jeff Courtnell is actually fifth in all time in Canucks scoring for the playoffs. Adams is a little further down; he's tenth. But Courtnell really lit it up in the playoffs for for the Canucks, 61 points in 65 games. Um, and I remember, of course, that big goal at Game 5 against Calgary back in 94 when he came streaking down the wing. Um, so I think that gave him a bit of nod. Also being from Victoria and being a former Cougar as well, I think that kind of gave him that little bit of a push. Um, so it, it's a, it's a, I'm a huge Greg Adams fan, though, as well. And so I, I think Adams, of course, that same year, he scored the Game 5 OT winner against Toronto that knocked out the Leafs and then the next game he scored the overtime winner in Madison Square Garden. So he's he's a uh, again a huge part and Adams is a guy I think that is pretty interchangeable same team as courtnell Uh they they're they can kind of flip back and forth a little bit in my opinion.
1: Yeah, I I agree like to me that's like you you're not wrong. You can make the an argument for either one. You can make the argument for courtnell you can make the argument for Adams. And you know what? Depending on who's arguing for who, I would probably agree with either one. I, I, I don't have an issue with either one. Courtnell being in over Adams, I'm fine with. Yeah, well, fair enough. They're they're both they're both
0: right up there. Cliff Ronning is another guy from that era who I guess centers are pretty jammed up. So it doesn't really matter because is gonna take that spot eventually anyways. So uh yeah, it's uh Adams and Courtnell. Tough ones there. Um again, two great trades though, uh as well, right around the same time that Brought them in. Uh, Adams came over with Kirk McLean from New Jersey and Courtnell as part of that, that big trade. I, I can't even remember. I get them all confused, but I think that was with Ronning, Mameso and, and Robert Dirk. If I remember, there was a couple of trades around there, but that brought in
1: all those guys. Didn't Garth Butcher and some other players go the other way? I forget who else, but I I feel like Garth Butcher was part of that deal as well with St. Louis.
0: Yeah, he I, he was. There's like I, I've I've said before, there's a lot of trades of the Blues. There were that era's Florida Panthers for us. Uh, there's a lot of crossover. Craig Janney, Peter Nedved. It gets it gets very very confusing. Um, last thing before we go to the free pour here, I uh, just wanted to touch on a Thomas Strantz article uh, about. The Last Dance and, and Pedersen, and I know you actually uh, brought this up and want to talk about it, so love to kind of get your thoughts on that article.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, obviously, I think everyone and their mom has been watching The Last Dance, uh, and, you know, even people who I don't think are Michael Jordan fans and don't think he's a, you know, a likable guy, I'll say this, you know what, I don't think Michael Jordan ever wanted to be a likable guy. I think he wanted to win at any means necessary and at any cost necessary Um, and to me, if you look at Jordan, then it's not a great character trait at all, but the thing that motivated him the most was his pettiness. And you could see how he would find these petty things. And sometimes he'd make them up. Like there was that thing where he lied about, I think it was a... I think it was a guy who played for the seventy-sixes. I don't remember his name, where the guy was hot one night. He was a young rookie, and he scored like 36 points. Jordan had a cold night, and they were playing a back-to-back. And then Jordan, after the game, had told his teammates, oh, that, that guy apparently came up to him and said, nice game, Mike. And then the next game, Jordan torched him. And it's almost like he made this petty little thing in his head to kind of go out to motivate him. You know, George Carl, you know, at the dinner when they played the Supersonics and Apparently they were at the same restaurant and George Carl never came over to say hi to him and they had ties ties to North Carolina and that motivated Jordan, you know, I'm going to go crush this guy. And it was that pettiness that, you know, really, you know, made him this great athlete. And it's interesting because you're hearing all these NBA players and you're hearing hockey players and that's what that article that you're talking about that Thomas Drance wrote, you know, where he interviewed Petey and Travis Green and actually he mentions Travis Green in it as well because obviously, you know, the Zen master um, uh, the, uh, Phil Jackson is another guy who, you know, you, you look at his coaching style and how he lets Dennis Rodman take, you know, three days, which turned into, I think, a week to go to Vegas in the middle of the season. uh, And then obviously in the finals, Rodman decides he's going to go to Nitro for a night and wrestle with Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah. And... How can you imagine that happening in today's NHL? You know what I mean? Or any sport league doesn't have to be the NHL. Imagine in the middle of the finals, you know, Bo Horvat decides he's going to go to the Calgary Stampede. And, you know, I mean, it's not quite the same thing, but, you know, do some bull riding. You know what I mean? Or whatever. It just it's so fucking ridiculous. And just to see how that team kind of came together and how every piece of the puzzle was perfectly melded. And what really inspires me is what's inspiring some of these young athletes to see what it takes to be a champion. And again, I don't think Petey's gonna go around and start punching Quinn Hughes in the face like Jordan did to Steve Kerr. But you know, I think it motivates them to realize, you know, how far you've got to push yourself. And be the leader and lead by example on a team to try to get the best out of everybody. And I know, I think it was episode three or four, Pete, around training camp last year when we started this beautiful podcast, we were talking about how disappointing it was that Jake ten came to training camp out of shape. And mm-hmm. you and I were talking about how I hope guys like Bo Horvat and Petey, hold him accountable because the coach can yell at him the coach can bag skate him he can put him with the fourth liners but it's the players in the dressing room that have to hold him accountable and i think jordan wanted to probably scream and yell at a guy like dennis rodman but the guy would go out and he'd produce every time he came back from his fucking vegas binge or his wcw nitro debut as rodzilla the guy came back and he put out like 20 rebounds and you know 10 points and four steals.
0: Yeah, the whole Rodman thing, I I mean, with that team, that's so interesting, and it really shows how you have to manage players different ways. But at the end of the day, if you're performing on the ice or on the court, your team and your coach is going to give you a little bit of leniency. I like what Petey says in the article about uh, his mindset and how focused he was, and I would like to see that carry on. I know there's a uh, JT Miller is a lot like that too, and a guy who – has helped the Canucks in so many ways. Again, Jake Virtanen is another way that Mil- Miller's helped this team is in improving Virtanen's game. Um, it'll be interesting to see how that translates over into players across the board in general and getting really inside the brain of Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan, I know a couple episodes ago when this pandemic began and we were like, what are we going to talk about? Let's talk about our favorite athletes of all time. Michael Jordan was right at the top of that list. I mean, he was the defining athlete of the nineties and you know, I've got some friends who aren't even sports fans who got hooked into the last dance because of the nostalgia that it brought back with them. The whole air Jordan craze. I mean, Michael was everywhere. Space jam. I mean, you McDonald's commercials, uh, Coke commercials, everyone wanted a piece of Michael and there was that nostalgia from anyone growing up in the nineties that, that drew people into the last dance and it's, Interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what players learn from that w- didn't grow up in the, this era when there was no social media and it was just what the news and the interviews were reporting on. You get these pieces of information about Dennis Rodman being seen in Vegas. Could you imagine that happening now? Like, could you imagine if guys like. We're out there like a Dennis Rodman Twitter account in this day and age or you're not even just like watching the the Internet just explode with with this kind of stuff. It would be incredible.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if like the world could really handle it like back then watching a guy like Dennis Rodman, you know, live it up in Vegas and party his ass off with, you know bottle upon bottle of tequila or whatever his drink of choice was i will also say this um i've noticed actually you know just going to and from work and you know taking the dog for a walk people are bringing out the bulls gear i've seen a couple of bulls jerseys start popping up again i saw a guy with a pippin jersey yesterday and then i've seen a couple of guys with jordan jerseys so uh, that's interesting as well that people are bringing their bulls gears back out Uh, But it was a great documentary, and I love – I mean, Petey to me has been a competitor from the moment we drafted him. You could tell that this guy wants to win. He's ultra competitive, much like a Michael Jordan. I don't know if there's any athletes that are really as competitive as Jordan was. The guy – the only guy that to me comes anywhere close to that was Kobe Bryant.
0: Yeah, I was going to say Kobe.
1: Yeah, he's the only guy, but, you know, in the whole Mamba mentality – and Petey seems to have that in him, and I think Petey, you know, he's one of those guys that wants to win at all costs, and, you know, I think that this documentary has been inspiring to a lot of these younger athletes, like you said, they didn't grow up that era and see Jordan for the greatness that he, you know, that team was, and they obviously know who he is, but, you know, to actually go back and to see him and to see him thinking about things and... Again, I I hope we're not going to have a whole bunch of petty athletes come out of this that are going to, you know, start making up stories about guys not shaking their hands to motivate them to, you know, take them out the next game kind of thing. But uh, it was a great documentary. And even Travis Green, like I said, you know, he was motivated by it as well. And I think uh, it was the perfect timing for that documentary to come out. It really yeah. was. And, uh, yeah, you know what? Some people don't like Jordan after watching it or, you know, their opinion of Jordan hasn't changed. They still think he's a jerk. And, you know what? Maybe he is, but I don't think he's ever tried to be anything but who he is. Uh, You know, a guy like Magic Johnson almost bothers me more because he tries to be this politician and to have this media persona about him. And, you know, even in the documentary when they're on the Dream Team, they're doing a scrimmage and you hear um, Magic say the F, he, he drops the F-bomb, he says, fuck. And then straight away, he looks at the camera, he's like, oh, you know, and then he says, frick, or whatever. So I, I hate that kind of fakeness, and Jordan was never fake. And one other thing,
0: just from that documentary, a uh, little thing in the towards the end there, but Carl uh, Malone going on the bus after they lost to shake Jordan's hand, uh, I'd never liked the jazz, but I saw that, I was like, wow, that's a gutsy move, man, like, good on Carl Malone. I thought that was pretty cool. Now, let's get into the free pour here. Let's do it
1: and it's time for uh free pour open floor and uh yeah i'm just gonna jump into mine uh you know with the restaurants and the bars reopening uh the last day or two uh you know i gotta say i'm really excited uh my buddy uh a bomb and i shout out to my buddy a bomb you've met him a couple times pete
0: i know a bomb what a hell of a guy
1: Yes, he is. Uh, him and I like to go for our little uh, lunch dates. Uh, so we like to go and try out, you know, random noodle places or, you know, Ethiopian food and stuff like that. We usually go, we were going, you know, every other Saturday uh, before the whole pandemic and the lockdown happened. And, uh, you know, he gave me a text today and he said, lunch committee getting back together this weekend. And I said, hell yeah. So I just want to say, you know, shout out to all the restaurants and all the bars that have been hustling the best of their ability to kind of stay open and to kind of, you know, maintain some sort of revenue. Uh, I'm really looking forward to going out there and eating some pho, eating some ramen, uh, some dumplings. And, Izakaya. Uh, yeah. Izakaya, exactly, man. Uh, but yeah, man, I just want to give a shout out to all the restaurants out there reopening.
0: Yeah, man, I agree with you. I've been trying to support the ones down here in the West End. Some of my favorites like uh, Stop and Goo and Uh, like goo you know great izakaya place but you can't really do izakaya at home and so you kind of get these bento boxes to go but uh they i'm glad they're still around and i'm with you man I, i can't wait to start doing that again um for me, I'm just gonna. I want to talk about uh, well, something you saw today, Doug, because we did get to see each other earlier today at work. Uh, but I bought a bike this week, finally, in Vancouver. So I had this money put aside for a plane ticket to fly to Europe in May. And spoiler alert, that isn't gonna happen. So I was like, you know what? By the time I'm actually probably able to go on and back to Europe, I'll probably have theoretically, hopefully, saved up enough money again. So I said, screw it, I'm buying a bike and. Vancouver is an incredible city to bike around, and uh, I've been using this opportunity to go on bike rides and explore the city more and go to these little pockets that I seldom or never go to. Like, I'd never done the whole Arbutus Corridor. What an awesome bike ride that is. Um, gone out to Trout Lake twice in this past week. I rarely was going out to Trout Lake because I live down in the West End. What an awesome ride that is, and what a great place to hang out. I, I rode out to Metrotown the other day. Um, it's it's just uh, something that I really think Vancouver. It's hopefully use and don't take for granted is i biked in quite a few cities around the world and Vancouver is one of the best in terms of bike lanes and scenery and getting around a number of people using it uh, we have a world class city here for biking so I finally got myself a, a part of team bicycle here and, and you know I can now be one of those angry people yelling at pedestrians and cars and, and shaking my fist at everybody as well
1: <laughs> I knew, you know what I have to say you got a really nice bike band. you uh, came in showed it off yeah, I worked here. It was almost like show and tell. You, I, you, I know you, you, you messaged me earlier saying, yeah, I'll probably come in tomorrow. I honestly think the whole reason you came in today was just to show off the bike. I needed to find a tool to fix something on the bike, uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> didn't have it there anyways. But
0: uh, yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a nice little toy, and if I can't go and discover the world, I'm going to explore the hell out of Vancouver this summer. Now we've talked about the moon. We've sung about the moon. We've even talked about the moon being made of green cheese. Finally, a first hand description of the surface of the moon from the moon. Well that's it, episode thirty six, uh, in the books, the Yannick Hansen episode. There's really not a lot of famous thirty sixes for the Canucks. Uh UC Jokinen had a Flash doing that too but 36 that's the Yannick Hansen episode for sure uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Pete underscore gas and you can follow our Canucks speakeasy account pardon me
1: there at Canucks speak uh, give me a follow on at Doug Venn, that's V E N N, and as we say all the time, our outro playlist you can hear the funky jams being played now. Give that a follow on Spotify if you're bored at home and you want to listen to some cool music. Uh, give the Canucks Speakeasy profile a follow on Spotify. Yeah, we pretty much
0: just in the last few minutes there highlighted everything we like, uh, which is food, Vancouver, music, and Hockey and sports. That's pretty much us in a nutshell. That's pretty much this podcast in a nutshell. Um, and until we see you all again,
1: uh, thanks for listening. Hasta luego.